Welcome to CE Conversations, a clinical podcast presented by Creative Educational Concepts designed to improve clinician performance and optimize patient outcomes. This session is entitled 2022 EGFR Positive Lung Cancer Rapid Recap, the evolving state of the science at EGFR positive non-small cell lung cancer. A closer look at the paradigm shifting synergy of safety, efficacy, and equitable access. The activity was planned by and for the healthcare team and learners will receive one hour of interprofessional continuing education or IPCE credit. It is also accredited for one hour of ACCME, ANCC, and ACPE credit, and supported through an independent educational grant from EQRX International. To earn CE credit and complete the evaluation for this activity, please visit the link in our show notes at the conclusion of the podcast. And with that, we'll turn it over to our expert faculty. Hi, everyone. Um, We're so glad that you could uh, join us today. Um, we will be discussing the evolving state of the science in EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. And so uh, the subtitle, A Closer Look at the Paradigm Shifting Synergy of Safety, Efficacy, and Equitable Access. And our, our kind of point of today is um, to go over some of the highlights of ASCO 2022, which just happened this month, um, and to go over some kind of patient-centered issues as well. So these have been running, so I'm sure that you guys have taken a look at this already. These are the disclaimers. And here are the disclosures of all of the planners and faculty. And so I want to say thank you, a big thank you to CEC Oncology, um, who is presenting the CME. And this CME is supported through an independent educational grant from EQRX. All right, and I'll introduce all of us. Um, So my name's Helena Yu. I'm a medical oncologist here at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center uh, in New York City. Uh, My practice focuses on patients with lung cancer and my research focus is EGFR mutant lung cancer. I am delighted to have with me Natasha Lail, um, who is also a medical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center in, um, at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Canada. And finally, um, Jill Feldman, um, I'm sure all of you guys know, founding member of the EGFR Resistors. So glad to have all of us ladies here to, to discuss this topic. Okay, so here are our learning objectives. Um, our plan is to review uh, top line data presented at ASCO 22, 2022, focused on the evolving and expanding placement of targeted therapies in the management of metastatic EGFR mutant non small cell lung cancer. We hope to evaluate these data in context of the established EGFR um, treatment calculus and identify pivotal fa- facets or key scientific messages from ASCO that possess the potential to change practice. And finally, use patient-centric viewpoints to discuss the burden of financial toxicity as an access obstacle to oral oncolytic therapeutics, with an emphasis on equitable access to EGFR targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitors. I feel like some of those sentences were tongue twisters, but here we go. Um, So I hope that you all either used your phone and scanned the QR code, or you can join um, if you're on a computer at slido.com and type in the code CEC22 so you can ask questions and participate in our polling. Um, And so um, to just show our familiarity with um, the program, if you could type into um, your phone or computer where you're joining us from. I'll do it as well. 
Kentucky suddenly got very large. Um, this is great. So I feel like we have um, great um, representation. So welcome everyone. Um, and now we will do some pretest uh, polling questions. So which of the following is true regarding data on CNS metastases presented at ASCO 2022? A, in chrysalis 2, amivantamab and lizertinib demonstrated meaningful clinical benefit, but not in patients with brain metastases. B, omalertinib uh, outperformed gefitinib in the CNS subgroup analysis of the Aeneas study. C, photon-involved field radiotherapy outperformed proton craniospinal irradiation in leptomeningeal disease, and D, none of the above. So please, oops, I, I probably shouldn't have done that right away, but please vote. All right, I think that we have um, some equal between the first two answers, A and B, and we will get to that answer um, during our talk. Next, um, the ASCO 2022 update from Chrysalis 2 evaluated amivantamab and lizertinib in what patient population? A, EGFR exon 20 insertion positive lung cancer, B, exon 19, uh, DEL or L858R only post osimertinib but chemotherapy naive, um, exon 19 deletion or L858R in first, as first line treatment, or finally D, exon 19 or L858R post osimertinib and post platinum chemotherapy. Please vote. I feel like people are voting in the chat, but if you can go to slido.com or use your phone to, to link to that QR code, um, you'll be able to vote. All right, so um, I think that this is challenging because there were many arms to Chrysalis too, um, but we'll, we'll go over what was presented new in, in, at ESCO. And then finally, last question, uh, based on real world data, uh, real world patient survey data, which of the following poses the greatest cancer care associated cost burden? Um, and this is based on a survey that perhaps some of you took um, uh, of cancer patients undergoing lung cancer treatment. Um, so A, medication costs, B, travel costs, C, procedural costs, or D, supportive care costs. Please vote. This should be pretty quick, so I'll turn us over. Great, this seemed um, like the most resounding answer of the three, A, medication costs. All right, perfect. So on to the sort of learning um, context uh, or learning portion of the talk. I think um, if you guys are on slido.com, um, if you there's a Q&A section. So if anything that any of us um, discusses um, sort of arises, you know, a question arises um, from any of that, please feel free to type in those questions and we will answer them at the end of the talk. All right, so I think to, to go over what is new um, in terms of treatment for EGFR mutant lung cancer, I think we need to briefly uh, go over what is standard of care now. So many of you are probably familiar with the NCCN guidelines, and those are um, guidelines created by major cancer centers to sort of come up with best practices for um, the treatment of different cancers. And so this is taken straight from their guidelines. And so for patients who have common sensitizing EGFR mutations, so EGFR exon 19 deletions, 
or L85-ADAR. If we know this upfront at initial diagnosis of metastatic disease, there are a lot of EGFR inhibitors that are approved, but mostly, at least here in the US, um, osimertinib is largely used as the standard of care as first-line monotherapy. And then, you know, sometimes EGFR mutations are discovered during first-line chemotherapy. Typically, that's someone getting chemotherapy um, because of perhaps um, a significant disease burden. Um, and then the EGFR inhibitor can be used as later line treatment. So I think the important sort of uh, clinical or research question is what happens after somebody's um, cancer grows on um, osimertinib? Um, so I think that if patients uh, or if cancers um, are uh, growing slowly and they are not leading to symptoms for patients. I think um, reasonable to continue osimertinib beyond progression. Um, uh, always we should consider local therapy for oligoprogression. Actually, we looked at our data uh, recently, about a quarter of patients at MSK that have progression on osimertinib actually have local therapy for oligoprogression prior to changing um, systemic treatment. If someone has brain-only progression, of course, uh, radiotherapy is really effective for treating that. Um, and, then, and then if um, there are sort of multi-site or symptomatic progression, we're going to move on to standard systemic therapy. And this is kind of the same thing, but for some patients, um, who have been dealing with their cancers for a longer period, they might be on one of the earlier generation EGFR TKIs or globally. This is, um, you know, patients are often started on erlotinib or gefitinib. Um, if patients are T790M positive, then they can get osimertinib in the second line setting. But otherwise, the paradigm kind of follows what we just went over for osimertinib. And then finally, this is a slide actually I made a few years ago, but I think there are a lot of moving pieces, um, meaning kind of ongoing clinical trials that really have the ability to change our management of EGFR mutant lung cancer. Um, I'm really interested in some of the first line targeted therapy combinations. You guys might be aware that there's osimertinib chemotherapy combinations, osimertinib plus the VEGF inhibitors, um, dual EGFR inhibition up, up front. So we really wanna see whether these can add upon single agent osimertinib. And then I think what's really important is if patients have um, disease progression on osimertinib, if possible, getting some sort of biopsy, either a liquid or tumor tissue biopsy. Um, and if possible, if we can direct treatment based on acquired genetic changes in the cancer, um, that's sort of the gray boxes up top, um, that, that's always desirable. I think clinical trials, if you have access to them are always um, something that we encourage um, patients to do. And then of course, standard chemotherapy is effective. It's reasonably well tolerated. And, and of course, is a good option um, after, after growth or progression on osimertinib. All right, so I think that was a, a little background and I'm gonna turn it over to Natasha who will go over the first uh, few abstracts from ASCO. Great, thank you so much. So I'm just waiting for control and I've got it. Uh, so we picked out uh, about seven abstracts that we thought were very, very interesting and very relevant uh, to people with EGFR mutant lung cancer or the management of, of this disease. And then Jill's going to talk about a very exciting survey as well. And, and some of the, you know, the really down to earth challenges that people face. So this was very exciting. And uh, this was a CNS analysis from Aeneas. This looked at omelertinib 
versus gefitinib. This is a, a first-line study in patients with common sensitizing mutations in EGFR. We've already heard about progression-free survival at ASCO last year, where you can see a very nice improvement in progression-free survival with omalertinib here, 19.3 months versus 9.9 similar response rates and a much longer duration of response if people do respond 18 months versus 8.3. And so this year at ASCO, they looked at the 27% of patients who had brain metastasis, it was about 115 patients overall, and you can see that these patients do also appear to derive benefit from omalertinib preferentially. So in this study, patients with stable asymptomatic brain metastasis that could be enrolled, they performed imaging at the start of the study and then every six weeks for the first 15 months and then every three months after that. And they had 106 patients where we could evaluate uh, you know, really timed progression. So that's the, the full analysis set. And then also a group of patients, 60 patients that were randomized, almost 30 in each arm, where we could actually look at intracranial response rates. Age was similar across the group. Patients were younger, under 60, two-thirds women, mostly autonocarcinoma, and about two-thirds were never smokers. Uh, interestingly, only 10% of patients, or less than 10% in the study overall, had brain radiotherapy, but those patients with these larger, sort of more focal measurable tumors were a little more likely to have some form of radiation, 15%, and it was fairly evenly split. Uh, about 60% had XL19 deletion mutations and about 40% had LA58R alterations. So this is really impressive, both in the full analysis set and those patients where you know, we can actually measure a lesion in the brain, you can see a very marked improvement in the time to progression in brain with omalertinib, the third generation EGFR inhibitor compared to gefitinib. And in particular, you know, this is very impressive in terms of a median, it is small numbers, but there's a really nice tail here that you can see a median of 29 months, which is really fantastic. I don't think we've seen that before. And it was very similar in patients where we saw measurable brain spots. Um, again, you know, small numbers, uh, some censoring here, but again, a, a bit of a plateau, which, which really makes us hopeful for long-term benefit from this drug and other drugs. In terms of duration of response, again, you know, very nice outcomes in patients who had CNS involvement and received omalertinib, uh, a median duration of response of 27.7 months, not as good in gefitinib. And so this is interesting, you know, it stands out a little bit from the FLORA study where patients that got gefitinib or erlotinib uh, did, did very well, including uh, in brain. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what comes of this longer term and perhaps with more patients. So in this study, amalertinib outperformed gefitinib, and that also included in patients with CNS disease. Amalertinib was better tolerated than gefitinib, and there were no new safety signals in this particular update. And of course, the big question is, you know, how does this compare against our current standard first line, osimertinib, which also has great CNS penetration, and there's a randomized trial underway uh, in Asia in patients with Egypt lung cancer. Important to note, though, that this is second line, um, where both these drugs are currently approved and in patients with T7IDM positive disease. Um, so I just, I just might ask my colleagues, Helena and Jill, uh, you know, were you as excited about this study as I was? Do you have any thoughts to add? 
Yes, I'll add a thought. Thank you, Natasha. I thought that this study was very important for our community because it showed superiority systemically, but now to show it, the CNS benefit is huge considering the prevalence of brain mats in people with EGFR positive lung cancer. But I also think, uh, I think uh, Helena mentioned before that outside of the U.S., osimertinib isn't you know, offered everywhere as first line therapy or covered. So this is really important as well for other countries. And hopefully, you know, too, I think um, it will make its way to other areas. So I totally agree with Jill. I think more options is always better. I think and especially when we start to combine treatments, we don't know if there will be interaction. So I think just having more options to work with is, is a, a great thing. And I think the, the global need for um, more third generation TKIs is, is big, so. Great, thank you both so much. So the other study that we thought was uh, really interesting was this update from the Chrysalis II study. This was presented by Dr. Catherine Shu, And this is a study combining amivantamab, which is a uh, bispecific antibody that targets both EGFR and MET with lizertinib, which is another third generation EGFR kinase inhibitor that's currently approved in Korea. Uh, so this analysis was uh, from this multi-arm study. Uh, Helen already mentioned that it is pretty complicated, so hard to get questions right on this one, but they presented data on from cohort A where patients were pretty heavily pretreated. All patients have had osimertinib, and all patients had also had platinum-based chemotherapy, so at least third-line therapy. And currently, of course, you know, patients in this um, in that situation really have very few good alternatives, docetaxel, clinical trials, and of course, immunotherapy for last. So this was a, a heavily pretreated uh, group of patients. About 40% had brain metastases. And what was interesting was the first half of patients enrolled had untreated brain metastases, but then they changed it uh, to, uh, to allow only patients with treated brain metastases. So there's about a 50-50 split. The median number of prior treatments was about three. So many of these people were getting this fourth-line therapy. And people had sort of any combination. They could have osimertinib and then chemotherapy, a number of kinase inhibitors, and then chemo, or you know, something completely different. So from the original chrysalis study, you know, we saw some interesting data last year suggesting a 36% response rate and a median duration of 9.6 months. And so it's really great to see in this study, which is incredibly large, 162 patients in this cohort, uh, that this response rate has really been confirmed, a 33% response rate, a median duration of response of 9.6 months, which is again, you know, really exciting. And a lot of us believe that this is potentially much better than what we would see with chemotherapy, at least in terms of duration of response. And you can see here on the waterfall plot, you know, whether people started with osimertinib and then had chemo in pink, whether they had multiple TKIs and then chemo or any permutation and combination, you know, people seem to benefit across the board. The other exciting thing, of course, with adding a third generation inhibitor is asking the question, you know, can we achieve better control in brain? And it was really interesting to see that in patients that had untreated brain metastasis, that 26% is a small number, seven out of 27, had complete clearance of their brain lesions. And this was often quite durable, as you can see down here, um, lasting for many, many weeks. So again, very exciting in terms of managing intracranial disease. 
So there was significant and durable anti-tumor activity after osimertinib and chemotherapy in all patients without any further biomarker selection. It was certainly very similar to what we saw after osimertinib alone. And uh, you know, this is certainly very promising as a potential new option in patients that don't have other options. And there are some randomized trials ongoing, Mariposa in the first line, comparing lizertinib and amivantamab to first line osimertinib. And then also in the pretreated group of patients where they're also adding chemotherapy to both arms and looking to see how this combination improves things. So with that, I might turn it back to you two again. Uh, any, any other observations or anything that you think we should really focus on with this combination? I, I agree with you, Natasha. I think it's um, super exciting to have um, targeted therapy options that look effective after osimertinib, but I think that's a huge unmet need for our patients. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm really excited about this combination. Um, I've treated some patients and I think it's pretty well tolerated. So I think i um, excited for this to be something we can use for all of our patients. And, and I guess one thing to add is, you know, both this and the HER3 antibody drug conjugate do look to be effective in, in sort of patients regardless of what the resistance mutation is or mechanism to osimertinib. And I think that is also something if we can use these treatments for all of our patients, that would be obviously preferred. Yes, I, I, I would just emphasize that, especially the fact that, you know, the majority of patients who are re-biopsy don't necessarily, you don't necessarily find a target to, to treat. So I think that that is critical and it's important that it is also another targeted therapy uh, because a patient has already had chemotherapy. And I think the data looks promising in you know, the true value of research to patients and our families is hope. And when you've had multiple lines of treatment to have this hope is huge, so. I agree, I agree. Thank you both. So the other really exciting combination that we heard about at ASCO is this combination of an antibody drug conjugate to lisatuzumab vidotin, which targets MET and also has a cytotoxic payload, a monomethyl or a statin E. And previously, we've heard safety data looking at telecetuzumab and erlotinib in patients with MET protein positive, non-small cell lung cancer, so this is different from mutations or amplification or hygiene copy. And at ASCO this year, we heard about patients that received telecetuzumab and osimertinib that had all previously progressed on osimertinib, so very, very exciting. Um, patients had to have sensitizing, classic sensitizing mutations, as you can see here, and either intermediate or high MET protein expression. So this is really still, you know, in dose escalation, and they're still confirming the dose. Uh, about seven of the patients were treated at the lower dose, 1.6 milligrams per kilogram, and 12 at 1.9 milligrams per kilogram. There was a fairly even split between those with high and intermediate staining. Um, and about, uh, about half of patients had just progressed on osimertinib before going on the trial. And what was really exciting was that overall, the response rate was 58%, which is really fantastic in this group of patients. Very similar, whether you had intermediate or high staining, similar across the two dose ranges. And also, you can see, although it's only in eight patients, half of those patients responded, even though they just progressed on osimertinib, simply by adding the telecystitinab to the combination. So very, very exciting. 
And uh, again, you can see here in this uh, waterfall plot, you know, irrespective of dose, very dramatic benefit across patients. Almost all the patients had at least some shrinkage and uh, very promising duration of treatment uh, response. You can see here, follow-up is still evolving, but some of these patients have even been on more than a year and a half. So again, another exciting combination at ASCO. Now, in terms of side effects, they didn't see any dose-limiting toxicities that made them lower the dose, but they did see a neuropathy uh, in about a third of patients, peripheral edema, that's one of the med effects, of course, and about a quarter, and nausea as among the most common side effects. And some of these, of course, are not related to drug, but rather related to cancer. So a uh, very impressive activity with this combination and overall response rate of 58%. Uh, you know, clearly uh, some proof of concept demonstrated here because at least half of these patients had just progressed on osimertinib. So we're not really talking about any sort of re-challenge effect of osimertinib alone generally well-tolerated, neuropathy, nausea, and edema are some of the common things to watch for. And uh, there's certainly a lot of activity moving forward, looking at uh, EGFR and MET targeting combinations such as this one. Jill and Helena, any, anything to add? Yeah, I would say here that I think we, we mentioned at the at the last abstract that um, mutation like acquired mutations to osimertinib are rare, but if they're present, I think that this reinforces that it's important to treat to biopsy to look for them because if um, they are present, the, there are options like this that really work very well in a selected population. Um, and I think this kind of um, corroborates data with osimertinib and savalitinib, uh, a different MET inhibitor, and I think um, you know, we're looking to see also what the biomarker is. This study used CMET expression, so protein expression. Um, some of the studies also use something called MET amplification, um, which is increased gene copy number. So I think, you know, there's different ways that MET is important in the resistance setting, but I think, you know, just reiterating it's important to biopsy because um, we want to find things like this if we can use them to offer new treatments. I would absolutely agree with everything Helena just said. Thanks. And, you know, it is kind of nice to see MET protein expression come back as a biomarker, you know, years ago, Dr. Yu, I don't know, you always look so young to me, um, but, uh, you know, uh, probably over a decade ago, we were trying to use MET antibodies in lung cancer and we really didn't get very far. So it's really nice to see this come back as a potential way to select patients. You know, we saw some similar data from Chrysalis last year um, where patients with MET protein expression, again, could benefit from this, um, you know, from a MET antibody and, and EGFR kinase inhibitors. So again, I, I agree, very, very exciting to move forward and, and really, um, you know, really underscores the importance of repeat biopsy and evaluation. So the last uh, update that I'm gonna talk about before I turn things over to Helena is this very interesting study from the NCI, NCI-998, presented by Dr. Reese. And this was looking at a combination of osimertinib plus nesitumumab, which is an anti-EGFR monoclonal antibody. You know, it is approved for use in lung cancer, but I don't think it's very widely used. It was originally approved in squamous lung cancer, um, but I think most of us um, usually, usually don't use this agent. But this was combining the two, so targeting EGFR from within and also outside using the monoclonal antibody in patients that had previously failed uh, EGFR kinase inhibitors, and they had a number of different cohorts. They're also looking at a number of different biomarkers in additional studies. So patients that failed fatinib, gefitinib, or erlotinib, 
patients that had progressed on osimertinib and were either T790M negative or positive. They looked at patients with X120 insertion mutations that had failed chemotherapy, but had not yet had uh, an EGFR kinase inhibitor or a third generation kinase inhibitor. And then patients in cohort E who progressed on first line osimertinib. Again, uh, you know, all of these populations I think are, are very, very interesting. And what they saw was really activity almost across the board, um, whether patients had progressed on first or second generation kinase inhibitors, you know, 22% responded. Uh, patients had T790M and failed osimertinib, a number responded. In exon 20 insertions, again, they saw responses. And in patients that had progressed on first line osimertinib, again, three out of 18 patients responded. So very, very interesting. Um, this was reasonably tolerated. The incidence of rash or severe rash was about 20%, as you might expect, but other toxicities were really um, not that common, or certainly severe toxicities weren't common. So the overall response rate across all cohorts was 19%. And again, these patients weren't selected molecularly uh, apart from those, those specific cohorts in the T790M. And you can see, of course, across all the cohorts, you know, a very nice representation of responses. I'm going to delve a little bit into the next area of patients with EGFR exon 20 insertion mutations. Helen is going to talk more about some of the great updates from ASCO, but certainly one of these cohorts uh, was in patients with exon 20 insertion mutations who had not had third generation kinase inhibitors. Uh, you can see that they had a response rate of 22% and uh, a median progression free survival of 6.9 months. So certainly potentially interesting. I think what would be important though to separate out um, you know, whether or not this is better than osimertinib by itself and better than some of our currently approved um, agents, amivantamab and uh, mobocertinib and uh, some of the exciting uh, new regimens that you're gonna talk about, Helena. So with that, you know, the group felt that the, this combination was very exciting and met its pre-specified uh, efficacy endpoints in several different cohorts. T790M negative patients that had progressed after first and second generation kinase inhibitors, patients with exon 20 insertions, and patients after failing first line osimertinib. And so, you know, they really think that this strategy of targeting EGFR from within and without, so to speak, uh, you know, really should be pursued further. So I think that is my last slide, but again, I'm just gonna ask Jill and Helena about your, your thoughts on this, this particular study. Well, I, I mean, my thoughts are, it, again, another option to look at for patients. And I think it's really important that we are looking at more than just monotherapy upfront as well. So, um, you know, the more information that we can learn. And I think for Exxon 20, um, it really could be promising. So, I, yeah, I agree with Jill and, and Natasha. I think that there's like glimmers of kind of select patients where this clearly benefits. Um, you know, there were some people that were on treatment for quite some time. I think it's just not understanding maybe yet what the right biomarker is in terms of selecting patients for this dual EGFR therapy. But I think definitely seems like something we need to look into further. And so- I agree. It'll be so interesting to look at, you know, EGFR amplification data and things like that, because, you know, we see, we see a lot of patients with this. Um, but with no, no good answer. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Helena um, to talk about some of the great progress in XMPT insertion. Perfect. So I think there were a few um, kind of interesting, what I might call second generation EGFR exon 20 inhibitors. 
Um, so I had uh, the honor of presenting this data um, on the Cullinan drug. So CLN081 is a novel irreversible oral EGFR inhibitor. Um, it is an ex it, it sort of inhibits a spectrum of EGFR mutations, but most relevant EGFR exon 20 insertions. Um, and then there is some thought, a lot of the EGFR exon 20 inhibitors have sort of specific side effects related to wild type EGFR inhibition. And that's really what causes rash and diarrhea. So there is some thought that the second generation EGFR exon 20 inhibitor, uh, inhibitors might have less of those wild type um, toxicities. Um, so the, the study that we presented was an ongoing sort of phase one, phase two study. So it was first in human. So first we were um, kind of addressing um, escalating doses of drug to see what would be the right dose. And then once we got to what we thought was a, a good recommended phase two dose, there was um, uh, an expansion. And I think what is maybe unique about this study compared to some of the other EGFR exon 20 inhibitor studies is it did allow patients to have prior EGFR TKIs. So um, here are the baseline characteristics of patients enrolled on the study. Um, a little more than a third did have a prior EGFR TKI, like a fatinib, gefitinib, or osimertinib, and some patients had EGFR exon 20 specific inhibitors. Um, and a little more than a third did have um, central nervous system in involvement, and most of these patients also were um, pretty heavily pretreated. And so here are the treatment-related toxicities. I think rash is still present, but mostly grade one. Um, and there was what we perhaps less diarrhea than um, we have seen with um, mobocertinib or poziotinib. Um, and here's the waterfall plot. So this is describing kind of percent shrinkage of, um, of patient tumors. Um, and the sort of at the 100 milligrams BID dose, which we think is probably the recommended phase two dose, the overall response rate was 41%, and the median progression-free survival um, was 12 months. And so I think um, looks promising, and I would say at least on par with amivantamab and some of the other EGFR inhibitors, um, but oral, um, it's a pill, and also perhaps less um, toxic. Uh, so our conclusions here were that the safety uh, profile did look acceptable for long-term treatment, um, meaningful clinical activity with an overall response rate of 41%, I think important, a median duration of response of greater than 21 months. So people that did benefit seem to benefit for a very long time um, and a median PFS of 12 months. And so there is an ongoing registrational phase two study. Um, and then there was some interest in looking at this drug for patients with brain metastases and also patients that had already been on other um, EGFR exon 20 specific treatments. Jill, Natasha, thoughts? Well, I, I mean, I this is a very promising uh, study, especially if there is good CNS penetration. I think you talked about the durability of response, understanding, you know, what who has that response and. Um, Marsha Horn from the Exxon 20 group said that they were very enthused about this uh, study and are so grateful that uh, Cullinan's ongoing expanded access program. And so that's important to patients and their families as well. I agree. I think this was a real knockout. Congratulations, Helena, you know, the chance to use an oral agent 
great response rate by comparison and that duration of response is amazing and combined with you know cns activity you know i think i think this drug this this compound is a real knockout so looking forward to uh to the next steps all right and speaking of other drugs that also look promising it's nice to have a few in in you know in the pipeline so that you know we, we have obviously again more options for our patients um so sunvozertinib which is the diazole compound if that was sort of the original name or the company that it's from is another likely more selective um perhaps second generation egfr exon 20 insertion um so there was um some data on this presented um, last year, and Dr. Yanni from um, Dana-Farber was the, the presenting author. Um, and so the, there was just more patients treated, um, as well as some um, kind of focus on previous treatments uh, of patients that were enrolled on the study. Um, and so here is the waterfall plot for um, uh, sunvozertinib. Um, the overall response rate was 40%. Uh, median duration of response was 5.9 months. Um, and you can see that most patients also had um, disease shrinkage um, on this drug. And they looked at responses um, uh, in patients who had prior immunotherapy, so anti-PDL1 treatment, um, or PD-1 treatment and patients who did not, and, and it really did look like the responses were similar uh, between those two groups. And then again, I think safety profile of this is quite reasonable. Um, there were some mild uh, sort of grade one toxicities, but not uh, too many grade three or greater toxicities. And so our conclusions here is that uh, are that um, anti-tumor activity was promising and clinically meaningful for patients. Um, and this was again, post-treatment with the standard of care um, right now for first-line treatment, which is platinum chemotherapy for patients with EGFRX on 20 positive lung cancers. Um, there seemed to be um, clinical benefit with or whether or not patients had prior immunotherapy. And the toxicity profile again looked um, reasonable and perhaps a little bit better than some of um, the other oral EGFR exon 20 inhibitors. I think probably similar comments uh, as the last abstract, but opening it up to Jill and Natasha. I agree again, you know, very exciting data. And I guess, you know, the great challenge next is, you know, is it really either or, or how do we use all of these great agents? What's the best sequence? And how do we learn which patients are most likely to derive the most benefit with each approach. Um, and again, you know, great CNS activities. So uh, again, a really, a really great uh, option for hopefully the near future. Yes, I agree with everything that Natasha just said. And I think it's very exciting for, you know, for years, Exxon 20, there weren't any targeted therapies. And so this is a really exciting time to be able to have these options. I totally agree. I think, as Natasha said, I think the sequencing question is really interesting. So the two approved drugs, one of them is an antibody and one is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And so we really don't have prior experience with other targeted therapies of whether there's kind of cross resistance between those. Um, so I think we really have to think about sequencing and whether there's efficacy there. And then second, I think mechanisms, now that we have these approved agents, we really don't know anything about mechanisms of resistance. Um, and I think, you know, thinking 
the long game for our patients, kind of knowing what drives resistance and, and starting to, to look into research that targets resistance, I think is the next step, but very exciting, I agree. And then finally, I thought this study was really exciting. Um, so um, as, as you all know, you know, about half of patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer at some point will develop um, brain metastases or CNS involvement, and about 10% will get leptomeningeal disease, which is cancer involvement in the lining of the brain and the spinal cord. Um, so right now for leptomeningeal disease, um, sometimes we use um, our traditional photon-based radiation, um, which can help with symptoms, but has not shown a survival benefit. So treating leptomeningeal disease with standard radiation has not helped extend the life of our patients. And it is quite toxic, especially if you're considering radiation of the whole brain and spinal cord. So proton-based radiation, you know, um, is something that is up and coming. And there's some thought that if we are radiating a very large area, the brain and the spinal cord, perhaps more focused beamed radiation um, might be less toxic. And um, this was actually done out of MSK and I, I have enrolled, uh, you know, a decent amount of patients for this, this study. So the phase one really showed that um, it was safe and it was tolerable with a, a real sort of, um, uh, glimmer or sort of evidence of efficacy. And so this is the phase two study, um, which Dr. Yang, my colleague, presented. Um, he focused on patients with non-small cell lung cancer and breast cancer because they are the two types of solid tumors that are really enriched uh, in leptomeningeal disease. Um, and then randomized patients um, two to one to receive proton CSI versus standard uh, photon radiation. And so here are the median CNS PFS, as well as the median survival. And I think this is really striking where we see, um, you know, more than three times the, the CNS control with proton-based radiation compared to photons. And, and you know, even though early, um, a significant survival benefit, I think just to again reiterate, there is no treatment in leptomeningeal disease that has demonstrated a survival benefit. So this is I think really big to sort of focus on a population that really, you know, there's unmet need. Um, and so we were all really excited about this data. And toxicity was actually quite reasonable. You can see that with standard radiation, you can get sort of significant um, fatigue or neurologic uh, issues like short-term memory loss um, or cytopenias if you're kind of radiating the entire um, kind of neuroaxis, um, but there was less fatigue and less cytopenias with the protons. So in conclusion, um, this is the first randomized clinical trial to ev evaluate best practice uh, radiation therapies for, so for solid tumor leptomeningeal disease. It did look like proton CSI improved both central nervous system progression-free survival as well as overall survival, and safety actually looked better, comparable or better than photon radiation. And I know that there is, based on this data, there is an NRG cooperative group study that is going to look at proton um, radiation compared to standard radiation kind of at a, a multi-center larger level, and I'm really excited about that study. Thoughts, Natasha, Jill? 
Well, I, this is a devastating diagnosis for patients because, as you said, there really aren't any treatments to improve overall survival. So I was really excited about this one as well. It is a huge growing unmet need in the community. And the fact that proton therapy is less toxic is obviously very appealing. Uh, the only thing I worry about, of course, is access to proton therapy because it isn't easily accessed. I agree. I mean, I think this is so exciting. I mean, I, I agree with Jill, it's devastating. And often the treatments are as bad or, you know, it can be very challenging um, to have treatment or, or regular craniospinal radiotherapy. So I agree, this is very exciting. In Canada, of course, all our radiation oncologists and patients are now advocating for a proton machine to be built. <laughs> Not sure where they're going to put it. I don't know. <laughs> Might have to move all of our offices. Um, but I, I agree, you know, very exciting and something that, that people need to move on. I think the access question, uh, point is a great one, Jill, that I, I honestly, you know, didn't think about or, or consider to a great degree. But I think hopefully if there really is clear benefits, uh, you know, in this and other cancers that will sort of drive, um, you know, building of more of these proton centers, because um, agree, there's only, I think, 10 or 15 uh, of these in the country. So uh, access is definitely limited. Right. But it looks very promising. And we have to do the studies, right, to sort of be able to, um, you know, generate the data that will drive practice. And I think I'm turning it over to you now. Yes. And I, so, so I have, oops, sorry, sorry, sorry. All right, you are turning it over to me. Okay, we're going to shift a little bit now. Um, the science is very exciting and it's promising. And at conferences like ASCO, the numbers and curves get the spotlight and they tell a very important story of averages and hazard ratios <clears throat> that may or may not be practice changing. And that is important, but that is the statistical narrative. It is not the whole story. And <clears throat> behind the p-value is another important part of the story, and that's people who, in addition to genetic variances, <clears throat> I'm sorry, <clears throat> who, in addition to genetic variation, have very unique differences in their age, race, ethnicity, gender, etc., and even in their experience with the healthcare system. Navigating a cancer diagnosis is just part of our very complicated lives, um, including you know, many barriers that are faced to getting a simple blood test, to having a CT scan, and depending on where somebody is in their care, it can be more difficult each time. So I think, you know, one way I'd like to look at it is, you know, when we're looking at cancer now, you look at how uh, important it is to study the microenvironment, right? Because whatever happens in the microenvironment affects the whole body and vice versa. And just like the cancer, whatever happens around us patients and our micro and macro environment influences our experience. And that experience has a direct impact on adherence, stress, quality of life, which all affect outcomes. 
And quality of life, I want to point out, is more than just controlling side effects. Overall survival isn't the most important endpoint, the only important endpoint, I should say, to patients, because it's not enough to just survive. We want to live. So facing these new realities in so many different aspects of life, as you're trying to make treatment decision, manage side effects, continue working, find pleasure, enjoy life, that all creates tremendous Stress. And then on top of that, of course, you have to work and take care of your family or trying to make future plans. So when we talk about what survival means to patients, it's unique to each patient, to our goals and our, our needs. And we all come from very different backgrounds and cultures, beliefs, and have, again, family, financial, medical, logistical, and many other concerns. And so many questions as we're making treatment decisions, like are the side effects temporary? Are they permanent? Can they be managed? What are the side effects of the drug I will take to manage the side effects of the treatment? And with the newer treatments, I you know, really do want to point out that way too often it is assumed that the acute effects of chemotherapy are worse than effects of TKIs. And it may look that way up front, but there's a finite amount of finite time that people are on toxic chemotherapy. You know, hopefully people are on these targeted therapies a very long time which actually leads even more to the financial toxicity impact that is tremendous. It has a significant impact on patients. And, you know, we know that affordability and access is a huge barrier to uh, minority communities and underserved populations. But, you know, I also want to mention that many people who have access and have insurance, uh, it's also a big burden. And it, it because, well, because why? Because insurance doesn't cover lost wages, out-of-pocket costs, childcare, transportation, treating side effects, et cetera. So the struggle is really uh, more prevalent than people think. And especially with the new treatments and new targeted therapies, the difference in pricing between traditional chemotherapy and targeted therapy has a dramatic impact on the cost of the different treatment regimens like the ones we were just talking about. And these costs have been shifted to patients in a way, negative, and that negatively can impact us. So just to give an example that we've discussed before is, you know, if you're on a drug and your, you know, clinician thinks that you should double the dose for a certain reason, well, insurance doesn't always cover that. So then a patient is required to make the co-payment or whatever they're paying out of pocket for double than what they are. And so that stress really has a huge impact on the well-being of patients and families who are already dealing 
with all the challenges associated with being diagnosed with cancer. Yet the costs continue to rise. And that was on the left-hand side is a, um, this was presented at ASCO, I think it was last year, um, on, the, uh, on the, in, the rise of cost in EGFR inhibitor drug prices from 2015 to 2020. And so when you look at that, you know, one thing I want you to think about is, again, I'm going to go back to TKIs, hopefully, or targeted therapies are used over long periods of time. And the compound effects throughout a person's care is completely underestimated and something that needs to really be discussed and addressed. Um, as I mentioned before, whatever happens around us in our micro and macro environment influences our experience. And that has a direct impact on um, our outcomes. So having access to the cutting edge treatment and having insurance that covers most of the cost of treatment is a privilege. It is definitely a privilege, but within the people who have that privilege, the financial burden can still be a grade five, especially when you have to, and I'm giving examples of um, things that I've known people have done when you've had to refinance your house, deplete your savings, forego a family vacation or your child's tennis lessons, baseball or dance, whatever activity that is, or even if you have to take out another credit card to help pay the bills. And, you know, so I love the quote that for patients who cannot afford therapy, regardless of their mutational status, their response rate is 0%. And it is a hard pill to swallow, pun intended. So I think it, you know, we really need to start to have this discussion around financial toxicity, which most patients really don't have with their doctors if they have insurance. And so I'm going to go to the survey now that we um, talked about, I think, uh, Helena or Natasha, or both of you had mentioned it. So this is a survey. I wanted to, for those of you who don't know who the EGFR resistors are, uh, we're a grassroots patient-driven community that is committed to, you know, accelerating research that will prolong and better the lives of people with EGFR positive lung cancer. And our community has over 3,000 patients and caregivers from all over the world. About 85% of our members are patients. And so we wanted to do the survey within our community. But again, I want to note that our community tends to be comprised of patients with higher educational and wealth statuses who are healthy or younger. And, you know, and we don't have the racial and ethnic diversities represented as much. So, you know, you can only imagine what the financial toxicity is for people outside of our group. But, um, 
within our group, we you see that 35% of the patients said that their health insurance coverage uh, plus any applicable patient assistance programs did not sufficiently cover monthly cost of their medications. Um, 35%. So again, these are people that have insurance, but not sufficiently covers all of their costs each month. And so you could see breaking down this cost burden, um, whoever said medication costs were the number one cost, you were right, as you can see, 50% said that. Um, but 26% said supportive care costs. And that can include anything from side effect managing to um, checkups and imaging, uh, also though to the psychological costs or some of the other costs, logistical or physical. So those costs are not ever taken into consideration either. 16% said travel costs. And, you know, I will say it again and again and again, but the FDA is absolutely okay with travel costs being covered in trials. So hopefully um, that's not a problem within trials. Um, and 9% said procedural costs. So um, and to know, respondents also indicated that insurance premiums and opportunity costs were especially burdensome. So what I will admit that I even did not expect to see the percent so high of people who had these financial burdens because of the distribution of our community, but they're there. Whoops. Did I miss? Oh, man. Sorry, I missed this when I went over it. Um, so 71% indicated financial cost has at least a modest impact on their monthly budget, with 36% reporting significant budgetary strain or barriers to access. So, and as you can see it broken down, the 34% said financial costs. 37% said traveling distance to treatment center and providers. And I think, you know, something important to note there too is that within our community, we don't have a lot of people that live within rural areas or, you know, have those challenges. So that's a significant amount of people. 11% um, said transportation and 18% uh, social determinants of health and healthcare inequities. So I'm sorry that I went the reverse in these slides, but, um, and then this is how it was broken down further. But I'm just curious, um, Helena and Natasha, um, do your patients about costs to you. I know that um, even, you know, I have definitely uh, some significant costs, um, including dental work um, with astronomical bills last year. And it wasn't something that I discussed with my oncologist, though. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, part of the challenge is, you know, we are, we, you know, I, 
want to hear about these things, but these things also are just so deep rooted and harder to fix, right? If someone comes to me and has nausea, I have five different things where I could try to help them. But this is, I mean, I can't even stress, you know, sort of more than you did that this is just such a, a hard thing where we, you know, I don't think our healthcare system is really equipped. You know, I, I think, um, you know, to be honest, we don't directly kind of ask without someone initiating. And, and if there is something that we know that something's challenging with a copay, um, you know, we, we refer them to social work about sort of different philanthropic options that, that there are, but it's, you know, it's, the, a lot of that burden or onus of finding those grants or those things is on the patient. You know, I think we just, as a, you know, sort of a healthcare system, we're not attuned to this. And I think this was like really, you know, eye-opening and revealing. Thanks. You know, I, I agree. That was, a, that's a great survey. And thanks for presenting that, Jill. You know, in, in Canada, it's a managed care system. And so you would naively think then if a drug's available, it's available for everyone. But even then, you know, across all of our provinces, it's, it's not always the same. Most intravenous drugs are covered for all patients, you know, from all walks of life. But not all, you know, tablets or some of these great oral medications, these targeted therapies, which have been so great, right? You get people back to work. People don't have to come into hospital, but they're not uniformly funded. And so, you know, sometimes younger patients or patients who are new to the country, like in our studies of financial toxicity, they've been sort of at the highest risk of not being able to afford drug or having sort of major life catastrophes and, you know, these awful choices, right? Do I send my kids to university? Do I sell the house? Would I rather keep the money for them or spend it on myself? You know, I mean, these awful things that, you know, our patients are struggling with enough. You really, like, they, they shouldn't have to deal with this. So, I mean, I guess the good thing is with all these great new options is probably many of them are increasing access. Um, but I agree with you. It just, it's, it's so devastating. You know, cancer's hard enough. Um, finding great options is hard enough. And then to, to have them inaccessible is, is really a challenge. And so, you know, in Canada, we do the same thing wherever we can free programs, right? Canadians love, there's nothing better than something for free in Canada. Um, and, you know, of course, trials have, have really helped us. So we often turn to trials as well as special programs. Yeah, and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I understand that. And I, I don't think, right, like you were talking about with like IV chemotherapy drugs, you didn't, there was never a question about cost in the past. So I don't think, doctors are used to talking about costs of drugs with their patients. And so that's a more recent thing. And I think, you know, for patients, one of the things that we really struggle with, though, is not wanting to put that burden on our family. So when I say it, you know, affects all outcomes, what I'm talking about is, Patients may fill their prescription every other month, or they may decide, you know, when people are on oral therapies, well, what if I take it every two days? Or what if I take it every three days? You aren't going to know the difference. And, you know, there's, these are dangerous things, but in order to put food on the table or in order to go away for a weekend with your family, these are, these are some of the things that patients do. Um, or suffer in silence if they have side effects because, um, you know, they aren't always covered. It, well, it seems that if there's a medication to prescribe, it's covered. But if, you know, say it's if somebody needs acupuncture or massage therapy, that's not covered. 
you know, by insurance for the most part. And obviously for people who don't have insurance, um, it's much harder and much worse. So, you know, I, I just would love for us to, you know, all come together and figure out a way that we can really address these financial toxicities. And I do think it starts with pressure on lowering the costs of the therapies because they, they're rising and that's just hurting the entire healthcare system and patients and families take the brunt of it, so. And hopefully these drugs like omalertinib or scintillimab, I think having more options, you know, there's more competition. So, I mean, I think we're hopeful, we don't know, but that that might help adjust some of the, the sort of costs of some of these medicines if there are more options um, that are more financially kind of feasible. We'll see. I, hope so. I think I think there are some changes underway in the U.S. You know, legally, I don't know when they'll come to pass, but you know, people really thinking about what some of the laws are that govern these things and how Medicaid is structured and doesn't need to be that way. Where we never talk about cost, we only talk about how well it works and safety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is to be a bit more reflective of, of what goes on outside outside the U.S. And then I think the other thing, of course, is, you know, as soon as we start talking about cost, everyone thinks, you know, oh, no, we're going to lose our ability to innovate. Um, So, again, you know, to be really creative and supportive and remind people that, you know, this isn't about, you know, curtailing innovation or curtailing, you know, the dream of of doing well or creating personalized therapies. It's about making sure that people benefit from the great things that have been, been developed. I agree. Thank you. So true. All right. Um, I tried to request access or can someone um, move me to the next slide? Great. I think we could talk about this a lot and I would love, you know, feedback from um, some of the patients um, listening today. And we're gonna do a quick post test. Um, And then the one thing I I did see some questions in the chat about um, the slides um, are available on a PDF, which is actually in the chat on Zoom. And um, CEC will send an email when the recording is available. So if you have uh, people that um, you think would benefit from listening or or looking at the slides, those are both uh, options for you. So these are the same questions, so I'm going to breeze through them. Um, the first one was, regard, what, what is true regarding the data on CNS metastases present, presented at ASCO? So Chrysalis 2, amivantamab, lizertinib, demonstrating meaningful clinical benefit, but not in patients with brain mets. Omolertinib outperforming gefitinib in the CNS subgroup analysis. Pro, photon radiation outperforming proton radiation, or none of the above. So please vote. And the other thing to mention in the chat is the evaluation of the program um, and to request CME credit. So um, please look for that link in the chat too. And then move forward. Yay, good, perfect. Um, so. So yes, I think amivantamab and lizertinib did show benefit in patients with brain mets, um, but the important finding was omalertinib outperformed gefitinib um, in the CNS subgroup. So great. So Chrysalis II evaluated amivantamab and lizertinib in EGFR exon 20, um, exon 19 or L858R post-OC, but chemo naive in the first line setting or 
uh, post-osimertinib and post-platinum in the third line and beyond. Please vote. Perfect. Um, I think that it's confusing because there are a lot of um, AMI laser studies that are in some of those other, um, you know, categories. So they're all right in, in a certain one, but the one that was presented at ASCO was again, post-OC and post-platinum. And then uh, finally, based on real world patient survey data, what is the greatest cancer care associated cost burden? Med medication costs, travel costs, procedural costs, supportive care costs, and of course, all are important, but what was the number one um, cost burden? Jill did the best, 90%. <laughs> um, so yes, um, I think Thanks for, for listening and, 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 you know, I thought that slide that you had of the different steps along the way is such a great slide. I think, um, I think eye-opening for us. I think, um, I don't know when this ends, but I think, you know, we'll look to see if there are any questions, um, as you know, in the last few minutes, um, let me see. Um, I think one question maybe for Natasha, is there anything to report about the uncommon EGFR mutations? Um, can some of these treatment strategies discussed be tried on those uncommon mutations like exon 18? Thanks, I think it's a great question. I think the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, I think there is some early evidence to suggest that some of the mechanisms of resistance are the same. And, you know, it's it's more that it's more challenging to sort of target that kinase domain. So, you know, whether we target it using, um, antibodies and kinase inhibitors or better third and fourth generation kinase inhibitors. You know, at, at ASCO from our, our update, you know, the NCI study did have a cohort where patients with uncommon mutations were there and they, and they did see responses. So they're gonna move forward with that. I think I think some of those patients um, that had progressed on a FATNET and so forth were, were in that group. So, um, you know, I think, I think we're looking forward to what's going on in more common mutations benefiting patients with uncommon mutations as well. Yeah, I think this is a huge unmet need. I feel very frustrated that a lot of the studies that we have at our institution um, are focused on those, you know, L858R and XN19 deletion. Um, and we know that these drugs would work. You know, there's no reason biologically to think that they wouldn't work in in more uncommon mutations, which make up, you know, five five percent or more of, of of the EGFR mutation. So I hope that more studies have more broad um, inclusion criteria. And I think the last question we can discuss is, do you think that um, osimertinib like TKIs in China or globally, maybe like lazertinib or omalertinib will have similar resistance mechanisms as osimertinib, um, potentially longer duration of response? I think this is also a great question. I think that what we know of this, like when we think about erlotinib, afatinib, jafitinib, um, those had very similar mechanisms of resistance. Most of those um, were dominated by T790M as an acquired mutation. Um, so I think that I, I would 
you know, sort of, uh, we don't know, but I would think that the me mechanisms of resistance to these newer third generation inhibitors would be similar to osimertinib. And I think the longer duration of response or better CNS penetration, those are great questions. I think the challenge is there'll never be, you know, a, a true head-to-head -head study in the first line setting um, likely, but, um, you know, a, a question that as we get further kind of more mature data on those newer EGFR inhibitors, I'd definitely be interested in, in, in seeing the data. I don't know, Natasha or Jill, if you have thoughts about that. I agree completely. I agree too, definitely. Well, I think um, I think the rest are a little bit of comments or things. So I think that that's, that's it. I think it was a, totally a pleasure for me to, to um, work with and, and, and be able to present with these um, inspiring people. Um, I think, you know, please, look at the the sort of um, information and slides and and you know I and others are always available if if you know people um, have questions um, so pleasure to interact with you guys but thanks very much this was great thank you thanks so much thank you for attending this edition of CE conversations we hope it has been impactful for your clinical practice and most importantly for the patients you serve Please proceed to the link in the show notes to complete the post-test and activity evaluation to claim your CE credit.